Welcome to Pedagogue, a podcast about teachers talking writing. I'm your host, Shane Wood. Pedagogue is dedicated to building a supportive community of writing teachers, committed to facilitating conversations that move across institutions and positions, and designed to help celebrate the labor teachers do inside and outside the classroom. Pedagogue aims to amplify voices. For more information about the podcast, visit pedagogpodcast.com. That's pedagogpodcast.com. Follow along on Twitter at underscore pedagogue underscore and on Instagram at pedagogpodcast. In this episode, I talk with In Jung Lee about multilingual writers teaching second language writing, critical approaches to language and literacy studies, multimodality, and translingual practices. In Jung Lee is an assistant professor of linguistics and rhetoric and composition at the University of Houston. Her research centers around literacy practices of multilingual writers, the politics of language, language ideologies, and equity issues in teaching of literacy and literacy teacher education, and decolonial language and literacy education. Her work has appeared in Composition Forum, Journal of Language, Identity, and Education, World Englishes, and Journal of Multicultural Discourses, and in edited collections such as Crossing Divides and Translingualistics. In Jung, thank you so much for joining us. I want to start with your teaching and research interest involving multilingual writers, specifically your attention to embracing a critical approach to language and literacy studies. Do you mind talking more about what this critical approach to language looks like and how this approach applies to teaching second language writing. First of all, I'm really honored to be recognized as somebody who can talk about critical um, approach to language and literacy studies. I, 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 I strive to working towards that goal and following many, many uh, scholars, um, their footsteps in both applied linguistics and language research uh, broadly conceived and also literacy studies, including competition and rhetoric. Um, I think for me, critical approach to language and literacy studies, really the key is centering the issue of power and ideology and how that's intersected and more specifically kind of reproduced through structure. So these are also tied to social inequalities, inequalities and inequity, right? And the kind of role that language specifically plays in them. the basic idea to me is always to reveal that our language and literacy use or practice or evaluation is not neutral um, and it reflects and reproduces the power difference um, in differential social categories, uh, whatever that may be. Um, particularly for teaching second language writing, I think broadly speaking, my understanding of second language uh, writing and who is often discussed as part of the second language writing, I guess, students. Um, It's discussed many writers um, who have different relationships or form different relationships with English in different ways. And I'm specifically talking about English because that's my focus in terms of second language writing. Um, But these writers often, in a different way, are positioned um, under different system that focuses on monolingual ideology and operates along with other ideologies like standard language ideology, racial linguistic ideology, and uh, what the uh, ASAO in a way has most recently termed as 
uh, white language supremacy. So this to me works in many different ways, including how we think about kind of influencing how we think about what good writing is and who can be a good writer and who is considered as legitimate writer. So for me, taking this approach in teaching um, second language writing particularly is helping, thinking along with our students basically to be more sensitive to this aspect of language use and uh, be more mindful in their um, performance or in their positionality as a writer in writing. I think that's, that's, that's for me, that's how it looks. So you emphasize how language is connected to social systems and structures in short, how language is linked to power. You talk about how ideologies inform how language is perceived, and you value linguistic justice and language equality. How do you frame these conversations in class? Or what practices do you use to invite students to think through inequalities and inequities attached or associated with language? I think the key thing is to opening up a space or creating a space with students to talk about this, how these ideologies work in different ways in real life and um, what experience and practices they, uh, what experience and practices are out there and we ourselves actually um, go through, go through. That's, that's has been always important thing, but in doing so more importantly for me, one thing that critical approach um, has taught me is over the years along with different frameworks, I think taking this approach meant foremost what experience and practice I am able to provide or rebuild together as a class rather than focusing on what kind of form of final product they will be producing. So if I, I and, and when I switched my mind to more of process and practice, it made me concern less about, okay, here's the three assignments that they're going to complete. And here's the three genre that they're going to do. And of course they're important, but I think I prioritize more of experience and practice. So how do I produce that? How do I provide that? Or how do we create that together? And as a result, byproduct of that will be a particular form of writing, right? So that kind of connection between experience and embodiment and product has been core to me, but more specifically, this allowed me to kind of think about the core principle of language and literacy learning, which is any good language or literacy learning as any human beings learn has to be contextualized and embodied, right? So it's not just learning skills, but you're experiencing it and you have, you form a sincere and genuine and embodied relationship with the thing that you're learning. So just, just to be more specific, um, in my own class right now at Queens College, I have a privilege of designing um, my class the way I want in terms of theme or assignment. I mean, ge there are general specific requirements, but what I do with my students with that is I focus on uh, multilingualism and navigating multilingual realities in a context here in Queens. Um, so my students talk about language ideologies, different language ideologies that shape the way we think about writing and we understand and value different language and literacy a certain way. Um, and a lot of my students have, they themselves are transnationals in different ways and immigrants in different ways. So they bring a lot of experience, firsthand experience of inequalities and inequities 
um, they experience through school or outside school. So I try to get them to reflect on their experiences and be able to kind of articulate what it is that influenced their experiences and why they had to experience those moments, both individually, but also kind of tied to the structure that that thrust into their whole life experience, both here and also other parts of the world that they have ties to, because these ideologies are not just in the US, right? These ideologies are not unique to English only. So they continue this conversation. They first begin this conversation by looking inward, kind of telling um, the moments where they uh, noticed these ideologies, how they impacted on them, and the first assignment oftentimes is a narrative, literacy narrative. And then they continue this conversation by uh, extending this with other community members. So they interview them and they collect uh, literacy artifacts from them. So they do this empirical inquiry, borrowing ethnographic methods. So they look at the firsthand uh, primary uh, data and analyze them. Um, in class and write a report. So if I talk in terms of the genre, they write this kind of research paper, right? And then the final reflection, that evolving reflection oftentimes uh, culminates in the form of multimodal remix project where they kind of uh, frame it as a response to everything that they have learned and share it with uh, public. I think those are usually the sequence that I have built over the last two, three years to start from within and really engage in reflective practice throughout the semester, but kind of expanding out so that they kind of start this conversation, not just with themselves, but with others and ultimately have something really share something that they would like to say about that in a context bigger than the classroom, engaging in different language and modalities. You center student experiences to talk about language politics. So you draw on these lived experiences to deconstruct systemic ideologies. Is that right? Yes, um, absolutely. And, and, and I got to read their reflections just, and it was really interesting to see how they all commented in one way or another that they realize their stories are not just individual. So it's just something that I experience in the period. It's not that. They, they listen to each other. They collect stories from their community members, their friends, their families, or somebody they admire. And they, they notice that this is actually, a, there's a pattern, right? And, and, and I think there, there is some power to that. First, it gives a language for them to talk about. It's not just individual, it's much bigger than that. And there are things that people have actually studied. This is an academic topic, which goes to the second point, which is this like personal experience and academic um, inquiry are not something separate. So that's something that they are surprised by a lot. So I think starting with their individual story first makes them feel like I don't have anything interesting to, to say, but then they ultimately see how that's not just individual, but also this is academic inquiry too, that people want to hear lived experiences and sometimes all the knowledge in academia actually doesn't represent their, <laughs> what they're going through um, as sharp as it can. So yeah, I think 
that's something that I have been trying to hone over the years, like starting from st student story, but how do we go beyond just sharing your individual story and just to me, I mean, individual stories are really good and, and they need to be cherished the way they are. But I think it can be powerful if we go beyond that and kind of say something at the structure, because that's something that really needs to change, right? To go beyond the status quo. It seems like you're also embracing a multimodal approach to teaching and using technologies to do this work as well. Yes, absolutely. And this is something that me and my colleagues, uh, Sarah Alvarez and Amy Wan discussed. And I'm glad that I got a chance to talk about this. Um, technology is absolutely important at this point. Um, more so now we are under the uh, pandemic where remote learning has become the essential way for all of us, both our students and educators um, and practitioners to learn. And it's deeply connected to the inequities and inequalities that um, we have uh, witnessed more in a amplified and magnified way. And I think the important thing is that our students already bring so much sensitivity and rich writing experiences and also the labor that goes into um, these experiences, both in kind of alphabetic text, of course, over multiple languages and different modalities, while kind of interacting and navigating with different writing apps that they already have on their phone. And I think like anything in our job as a writing teacher, and I think it begins with the recognizing and honoring richness and complexity in what our students already do with language. And we should foster and foreground these opportunities um, of writing beyond the monolingual and monomodal because Often these platforms um, allow us and also students to kind of experience language and writing much more expansive and embodied ways. And um, it also shows that our students, um, both us and our students, kind of different possibilities of languaging and writing to kind of transform the quote-unquote academic writing. Like we oftentimes have a very fixed understanding of what quote-unquote academic writing should be, and these are the great opportunities for us to kind of engage in to see um, the way we write is actually a lot more embodied, um, and these platforms allow us to kind of show that. But also importantly, I think it's important to think that it is possible to do all this work with what's available in our own institutional structure, um, although unfortunately oftentimes with limited uh, materialities, this means we have to engage in a lot more labor, more explicitly and more conscientiously. But in turn, because of the in inequitable structure, I think this work becomes even more important. So I want to focus back on second language writing. What are some key issues in the teaching and research of second language writing? Yeah, that's a really great question. One issue that we go over and over, and especially these um, last few years, has been where the, the, the kind of balance between how we work against uh, white language supremacy or monolingual ideology while also helping students to expand their language repertoire. I think where is the line? Are we choosing one over the other? I think that has been the key issue because oftentimes uh, working against monolingual ideology, monolingual English only ideology or uh, standard language ideology in general has been taken to mean that, 
uh, we value you know plurality in the way people use language and take up language and negotiate creatively use error language error to communicate their positionality and standpoint right um, but at the same time i think one of the things that uh, people worry about is you need to know enough about the language to be able to engage in that and that's that's one side of one comment that people make therefore we need to teach um, standard English for sure that's an important that's limited but that's for the language that students to be able to function in I think that's one kind of comment on the other I also am aware that that's that's not enough we just need to change the way we just think about what's the legitimate language that we can make meaning and we can function as a citizen um, and also a writer in 21st century and in multilingual realities so I think second language writing people are often kind of caught between these kind of two idea and oftentimes aligned with uh, we need to you know teach standard English or we need to teach English. So I think that's a key issue. I, I don't think that these are necessarily mutually exclusive. It doesn't have to be, but that's, I mean, this conversation is, it has a serious consequence right on both on both individual level but also as a field because academics definitely are one of the academics are definitely one of the groups that benefit from acquisition or master near mastery of standard english because we publish in standard english standard written english and we reproduce standard written english in the way we talk about it right i think this is a really fine line that i wish we continue to talk more about because i i'm not sure if we we we, we have worked maybe i shouldn't say have worked we we are trying to encourage and you know engage in this cross-disciplinary or transdisciplinary conversations about this but when it comes to you know materiality people don't always work together right I mean schools work in their own local setting and each state has its own standards it, this is going to be a huge conversation that we need to continue to kind of work together but how we are going to uh, materialize in policy and actual standards, standardized testing, and in any way that we use uh, writing to evaluate students, that's, that's, a, that's a really, really big issue. At least in classroom level, I think there are ways, particular principles to be more encouraged and said and discussed more explicitly. When we talk about a change, I think people want to imagine, so what this looks like, right? That's the first question that you ask. What does this look like? We need to be able to picture this kind of together. This is what it looks like. I think we have a lot of principles, but maybe we haven't painted the picture clear enough. And there's always concern for that because that may look like this is the way, right? But I think we need more work that show this is how we can look. And teaching English doesn't necessarily mean that you're demanding monolingual ideology. I think we need more of this work um, that shows the possibilities so that how translation of principles doesn't look like just theoretical. Maybe we can talk a bit more about practice. In your co-authored chapter, Translingual Practice, Ethnic Identity, and Voice in Writing, 
You talk about your experience as a graduate student and how you, quote, became keenly aware of your ethnic identity, end quote, when a teacher asked for your interpretation of a text because your ethnic identity. After, you also share your experience as a teacher in the writing classroom, how students perceived your identity and how you have conversations with them about identity. Do you mind talking more about the affordances of translingual practice and how translingual practice helps us better understand ethnic identity? That piece was written such a long time ago. I, and then ever since I wrote that piece, I continue to think about that. And I, like you are just asking that question made me realize, huh, like how, how am I, do I still think the same way or differently? Or if, if differently, what else have I learned? Or do I un- interpret that uh, to incidents the same way? But I mean, if reflecting back, I think my contribution to that piece was mainly the issue of essentialization and how translingual practices kind of help us to think beyond that. And I I still do think that, but I think maybe I'll go back a little bit. I think that particular story that I shared um, was to show the people of the essentialized view of ethnic identity that kind of reinforces the idea of one language and one ethnic ethnicity or nation, which is which, which is also the pillar that uh, operates monolingual ideology, right? Often, it's, it's problematic because that connection often very much simplifies the multiple forms of connection that one person has to the country and, and to the ethnic identity. Because as soon as you put the label on it, then it kind of de- erases all the other complexity. Um, kind of draws a line as it's a fixed thing and static thing. And, and, and this, I think this gaze operates within the monolingual ideology to me. And uh, with the interaction with my students, I think it's, it's interesting because they did want to confirm whether I was Korean or not. But I think that gaze was not necessarily the same as the one that I felt in the classroom with my professor who wanted my interpretation. It's mainly because to me, the students came from a different place um, than the professor. They came from a place of desire to connect and care and coexist. So I think one point to be made in this is that my translingual practices Although I'm like technically the same person, like if I if somebody would put put a label on me, I I would remain the same, right? I was international students, I was Korean and English speakers, and I was a graduate student. I was female, Asian female, but my translingual practices across these two different spaces were interpreted differently, um, and appreciated differently in different spaces. And in that particular setting with my students, I feel like my translingual practice was kind of interpreted as a nod to them, that I am with you, I hear you, I coexist with you, I understand. But also, but, but, but with the professor, it wasn't interpreted that way because even after that conversation, when I actually tr- try to fully adopt I guess now I can call that as translingual practice because I really try to fully adopt all the different backgrounds that I have as a person and try to write a paper and it wasn't, you know, welcome at all. So I only existed in a way that he expected me to exist in that space. Right. So I I think that was, that's one point to be made that translingual practices are always appreciated and valued differently um, given the positionality 
and what particular dominant gaze that we are functioning under. Another point on another level, I think this point is maybe what you were asking me in the original question. Translingual practices help me to kind of think about ethnic identity that, that emphasizes the fact that it continues to evolve and more fluid compared to the way that ethnic identity is understood in the monolingual lens, which was the case that I got from the professor, right? You're Korean. You think about this particular issue from a very position that I subject you to. Translingual practices give me a language to think about ethnic identity in a different way. Think about the connection between identity and language in a much more open-ended way. One example that I still think about is it's not it's not from this chapter, but um, like the conversation that I have with my students that yeah, Spanish is my language, but can I would I call myself Spanish speaker, or would I call myself? I mean, my parents are from Peru, but would I say I'm Peruvian? It it's a lot it's a lot more complex than your you know, heritage and um, your ethnic identity, I guess, then there's a lot more going on than just simply saying, I am Peruvian and of course I speak Spanish, right? So the, the connection is a lot more fluid and the connection is a lot more discursive and very performative, which also ties back to your lived experience. I think in that sense, transingual practices kind of push the way that we think, often think about ethnic identity and language use. Thanks, Injung. And thank you, pedagogue listeners and followers. Until next time.